Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It's a pleasure to welcome a friend, but also someone who has really made a significant difference in both American policy and what's right in this world, Stephen Flato. Steve is uh, an attorney. Unfortunately, his family suffered a terrible tragedy when in 1995, his daughter, Elisa, was killed in a suicide bombing attack. But because of who he is and who his family is, he chose not just to take that as a tra personal tragedy, but to try to make a difference in this world and was successful in many different efforts in lobbying the government to not to stand up to this and not to just watch this go by, but really to stand up to it. And so, Steve, over these years, it's almost 30 years, it's hard to imagine, what was the most important accomplishment you think you've done that in memory of Elisa? Well, I think the, the first thing is um, not losing my mind, not succumbing to the, um, uh, to the grief that accompanies the loss of a child. Um, as I think you know, uh, Len, um, nobody is prepared to advise a parent who has lost a child, rabbi, minister, priest, anybody. That, there's nothing that, that they can say that will, will comfort a child. Um, I did come to realize very, very early on that she died as a martyr. Uh, she was a kadosh. And in many respects, that um, put me on a certain course. But uh, really, the um, um, I think the best thing we've accomplished is that um, with the parents of four productive children, um, grown up, they're now hitting 40 and older, time does not stand still. And we have 16 grandchildren, four of whom named after Elisa, uh, four girls named after Elisa. And um, they're living uh, lives that I think Elisa would be very proud of. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you, you know, you fully realize, but um, we were not what you would call observant Jews before Lisa started kindergarten in 1979. And she basically started us on this um, path to orthodoxy, let, let's call it. Uh, and everything I've learned about Judaism has really come from Lisa and my kids. So uh, our heads are above water. Um, uh, you're never the same. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, I think about it every day, uh, but at the same time, we put one foot in front of the other and keep moving. And on a political level, you were able to to initiate a whole series of lawsuits against the government of Iran, an amendment to the U.S. Foreign uh, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in '76. It those kinds of things made a difference. Do they? still make a difference in the United States today? What, what uh, actually the so-called Flato Amendment has been uh, revised. Uh, they, they changed it because uh, what we were able to actually accomplish is open up uh, the, the courts uh, to uh, victims of terror. And um, after several years, the government realized um, that this concept of lawfare, as opposed to warfare, uh, had to be further modified. So. Um, subsequent uh, administrations since Clinton have modified that Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Uh, I, wanna, I don't want to say to make it more difficult, but there are other hoops that, and hurdles that, that victims' parents have to um, go through. Uh, however, what I did not appreciate, or the extent of understanding, uh, was the political weight 
um, that the Iranian government still carried uh, with the United States government. Uh, it was as if um, I became the enemy of the United States because they would appear in court um, on behalf of the Iranian government. And, and it took several years after the adoption of the Flato Amendment in 1996 until President Clinton realized that this can't go on forever. And uh, we put enough sideways pressure on him that he agreed to compensate not just my family, but another, but a whole group of families who were victims of Iranian terrorism. So that came to an end in 2001. And now we find terror victims are still slugging it out in the courts. Um, they've expanded their, their reach. Uh, they're going after banks um, that have funded uh, the terrorists. So they want, they're going after the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Everyone seems to have forgotten about the PLO. And in most of these cases, the United States has stepped in on behalf of terrorist supporters and terrorist sponsors and terrorist bankers. So it's still a, a horrible fight being waged. So how, how do you explain the United States taking the side of Iran or other terrorist organizations? Well, um, I'm not going to mention Stuart Eisenstadt's name. Oh, I just did. <laughs> um, but he was speaking on behalf of the Clinton administration one day when he told me at the State Department that no one dictates the foreign policy of the United States to the State Department. And he was looking at me. And yes, we were trying to change the foreign policy. And people often said to me, um, well, the State Department is anti-Semitic. And, and I, I say, no, they're not anti-Semitic. They have a vision, they have a view of the Middle East that simply differs with ours. It's been this way since the 20s and 30s. And we, we have to realize that it's gonna take more than Steve Flato and a few terror victims to get the State Department to realize um, that there, there is more involved than just oil. Um, if you think back to when the Biden administration came in, they couldn't utter the words Abraham Accords. They couldn't say it. It just struck them as, as something impossible. First of all, I guess they didn't want to give credit to, to Trump's people who, who put it together. Um, and at, at the same time, they didn't know what quite to do. Well, after two years now, they've come along and they're starting to recognize that there is, there is pluses. Um, as well as minuses to the relationships between Israel and the UAE and other Arabic countries. Um, but it's still, um, the Middle East is, is still a problem for the United States. And, and, and that will not change until the bureaucrats at the State Department, I'm not talking about appointed officials, but the salaried employees are replaced with people who understand there's more than oil involved in the Middle East. Well, we go back even to the founding of the State of Israel with George Marshall and uh, and Atchison and uh, and uh, uh, all of their positions, which really called into question. Mar uh, Marshall did not want Truman to to recognize the State of Israel. So right. it, it's and it's hard to understand how the State Department can operate almost independent of the administration in some ways. Uh, it's not appointed. It's not just state. It's all the government uh, cabinet positions, whether it's environmental protection, whether it's housing and urban development, whether it's education. You, you have a core group of people uh, who Ira Stoll, who was an interesting columnist, calls the Weebies. And basically they say to the person who's appointed above them by the president, we be here before you and we be here after you. So we be the ones who are going to do the work. And it takes an incredibly, incredibly strong administrator to overrule those people. And sometimes they just can't do it.
So it requires a new way of thinking. And we so don't have it. And you think all of this is even tied into the current situation with the continued attempts by the administration to reach an agreement, a nuclear agreement with Iran once again, or to renew the, the agreements? Or is well, it a this is, issue? Right. So I, I think that the Iranian uh, situation, which began, of course, in 1979, under uh, Jimmy Carter, when the hostages were, se uh, were seized in, in Tehran, this is a continuation of that. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is they, they love to point fingers at the United States and say, well, you overthrew a guy, you know, 40 years earlier or 30 years earlier. So now we're getting, you know, it's time for, you know, for payback and things like that. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that there is a terrible religious undercurrent uh, in, the, in the Muslim world. And they cannot abide us, whether it's Israel, whether it's Great Britain, whether it's France, whether it's the United States. They cannot abide a Western outlook on things, which to me means live and let live. And, and what we're seeing with the Iranians, I think, is a, is a natural progression um, that um, uh, should not be ignored because they have told us very clearly they're going to wipe the Zionists off the face of the earth. So are they really inviting Armageddon? Uh, to me, it sounds like they are. Um, for what purpose? I don't understand Islamic thought as far as what the aftermath would be or anything like that. Um, but it's uh, also part of the Middle East psyche. You know, the Middle East is um, not what you and I grew up in, and, and we don't think and talk the same way. And even then, we have Israelis who, who sound very similar to the Iranians and the Palestinians sometimes. They say, we're going to crush you with an iron hand. My, my outlook has always been speak softly, carry a big stick. You know, so going down to their level doesn't accomplish anything. And it's um, just a it's, it's a catch-22. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So how did you get to the highest levels of government? I, I, please, I, I hope this isn't taken the wrong way, but a regular attorney, a very bright one, but be able to work all the way up the uh, the ladder of government to to speak to secretaries of state to to really take on the American government's perspective. The um, uh, the night that Elisa died, I received a phone call from Bill Clinton, and you could hear his voice. It was four o'clock in the afternoon in America, and he's saying to me on the telephone that my wife and I were talking this morning about what you've gone through and how brave you how brave you are because he was getting reports apparently from the the embassy in Tel Aviv because they were with me in Beersheba where Elisa was and, and in Tel Aviv afterwards and uh, he's like you know, how, how brave you've been and I don't know why I said it it's just one of those things that you know came out of my heart and I said Mr. President you would do anything for your daughter wouldn't you he says of course I said well I'm still Elisa's father not, she may not be here, but I am still her father. And I have kept that with me ever since. And um, it, gives you, um, it, it gives you a sense of comfort. Um, and uh, I was also very lucky to have a couple of good lawyers working with me. But I will tell you, and I'll tell everyone viewing this, that making legislation in Washington, D.C. is no picnic. But we did it with perseverance. I mean, I was going back and forth to Washington once a week. And I, I did it at this time of year, August of, of 96 and nine, into 97. And I will tell you that you don't want to be in Washington, D.C. in the summer. <laughs> it is hot and humid. 
but we just did it. And I would get home exhausted at night, absolutely exhausted, but I, I slept a good sleep. Um, and then what was very helpful to me was I was on the speaking circuit for a couple of major national uh, Jewish organizations. And just by talking about our experience, um, it gave me chizik for the next day. You know, so I was able to keep boosting my, myself up. And in that regard, I was very lucky. And today, are there who are the families who are fighting the same battle and haven't had yet any success? Are there people you're working with? Uh, I'm not. I'm not working with anyone, to be honest with you. Um, I, I've met with people over the years um, who have, um, you know, asked me, "Should we sue? Should we not sue?" And I, I tell them what it's going to take. Um, where, where, where my heart is broken right now involves a, a young girl uh, who was murdered in the Sabaro bombing, and her name is Malky Roth. I shouldn't forget to mention her name. And Malky Roth's murderer is living in the open in Jordan, where she has had a TV show. She's treated as a celebrity. And there is an indictment against her in the United States of America. And the United States will not press King Abdullah to have her turned over to American justice. So that's the kind of heartbreaking things that you, you still see going on. Individual plaintiffs, Basically, what they started doing in 1997 and 1998 is going to our case file, copying the complaints, and then substituting names, dates, events, things like that. And what was uh, what was said, but at the same time made our life eventually easier, was the Iranians did not appear in the lawsuits. They just do not appear. We expected the government to appear. We expected to have an attorney enter on behalf of the Iranian government because my attorney, Steve Perlis, and I thought it would be a five to 10 year venture. And what we were looking forward to was displaying all of Iran's evilness, its, it's dirty laundry. We were willing to explain, disclose, disclose that in the public eye. So by their not appearing in the action, they actually cut out our legs from underneath us as far as that aspect was concerned. And we got our judgment as quickly as we did was a, uh, not a miracle, but um, it was unexpected. And that's when the real hard work started. So going back to the Sparrow bombing, that, that, that's August of 2000, 2001. 2001. It's so 20 years. And in the 20 years, the Roth family, have they been suing? They've or that, that part, I, I've never discussed that with, with Arnold Roth, her father. Um, they um, have been angling more for the extradition from Jordan. And this is an ongoing running battle with, with state and justice. You know, a few weeks ago, um, there was an American-Palestinian reporter tragically killed in Janine, uh, whether by Israeli gunfire, Palestinian gunfire, nobody knows for sure. And she had a meeting with the State Department. Her parents had a meeting with the State Department. You know, and it was clearly an accidental killing. And they're, they're treating her as if she is some sort of, of, of murder victim of Israel. So they, they lay out the red carpet for her parents. And I don't need to, I don't mean to diminish her death. It's horrible. They get caught in the middle like that. And at the same time, the Roths can't get a meeting with anybody. And the people from Department of Justice blow them off all the time. We're working on it. We're working on it. Well, I've heard that too. I've heard that too. And um, if, if they're working on it, they finally end, bring this lady over here, I'll be the most surprised person. Well, the second most surprised, the first person will be, will be Arnold Roth and his wife, Fremit, and I'll, and I'll be the second most because we can't fathom what goes through the minds at, at DOJ. But at the end of the day, 
It comes from the White House. It comes from the White House. So just if you were putting yourself in the in the shoes of the people of Department of Justice or State Department, is there an is there an argument or is it just we don't want people telling us what to do? I think it's I think it's both. I think it's both. In our case, with Elisa, I went to the Department of Justice in the um, late 90s, early twos, and I said, look, there, there's two guys that the Israelis captured who murdered Elisa, and they're sitting in an Israeli prison. I'd like you to at least indict them and put an arrest warrant out because my fear is they're going to be released by Israel one day. And it may happen now or next year or five years or 10 years down the road, they're going to be released. I want these warrants hanging over their heads so they can be snatched up for murdering Elisa. What the Israelis do is one thing. What you do is something different. And the answer I got back is, well, we're not sure about their confessions, whether they were freely given. We're not sure. We don't have enough translators to transcribe the records. Well, if your heart is in it, you do it. Their heart is not in it. I'm convinced of that. And in the previous administration under President Trump, he took some pretty tough stands in pro-Israel. Is there a reason why those kind of the, the case of Malky Roth wouldn't have been brought forward at that time? Uh, I, I can't explain what went on in the Trump administration because um, I haven't told the story publicly before, but we approached the Trump administration, uh, Steve Perlis and I approached the administration and said, look, we have located Iranian assets that are in dispute. This would be a great way to show your bona fides about cracking down on them and letting, you know, sequestering them yourself or letting terror victims try to attach them as well. We didn't get a nibble to our, um, to our overture, let, let's say that. And that would have been a good opportunity, I think, for, for him to show um, that um, the United States was not going to continue to stand by uh, as terror victims were, were looking for some sort of, um, uh, I hate to hear justice, but hold the Iranians you know, financially um, accountable. Um, so I, I'm not surprised by anything any longer that, that a government can do. Um, we, we, you know, I mentioned before that we came at, at President Clinton sideways. Um, what had happened, and this is in my book, um, I was invited down to um, Washington by Martin Indyk. He was an undersecretary of state for Middle Eastern Affairs. And he says, come for tea at the State Department. So I went for tea at the State Department. And in the middle of this very polite conversation, he said to me that, you know, when a president has all his advisors in line on an issue, he won't go against them unless there's pressure from the outside. We found the pressure. The pressure's name was Hillary Clinton because she was running for Senate in New York and she made a terrible mistake. You may remember she was visiting as the first lady. She was in the, she was in the disputed territories and there was a speech being given by Sua Arafat. And Hillary did not have headphones on. She didn't have a translator. And Sua Arafat is up there and giving great rounds of applause as she's speaking in Arabic. And it turns out afterwards uh, that she was blaming Israel for AIDS, for cancer in the kids, poisoning the water, all these things. And Hillary had kissed her on both cheeks after that speech. So she had to make amends to the American Jewish community. Um, and I believe it was uh, former Senator um, Joe Lieberman who helped her get before the Orthodox Union in Manhattan. 
And I asked her a question. I was invited to this conference and I said, you know, Mrs. Clinton, do you support the administration's efforts that are blocking terror victims from collecting uh, Iranian assets? And she said, no, I do not support that. Could have knocked me over. Actually, she did. I had to sit right down when she said that. And that was the beginning of the break that we needed very desperately from the Clinton administration. And it followed through. We had a we had a, a call a negotiating committee appointed, and my lawyers met with their lawyers, and other lawyers met with their lawyers, and and we had this compromise that came about in two thousand that paid that paid these Iranian terror victims our compensatories, uh, part of a judgment that we obtained. Uh, my case was like twenty four million dollars. Terry Anderson got fifty million dollars. Other families got seventeen, eighteen million dollars. Um, but that was the weak list. That that was the weak link. Uh, in, in President Clinton's armor, us going after Hillary. And to this day, I'm grateful for that. So it's actually good she gave those couple of kisses to Arafat. <laughs> no, when you look at it that way, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, we're now in 2022, and we're trying to educate the next generation. And I'm sure you're speaking all over the world in all different kinds of settings. When you speak to, to audiences, What's your main message? My main message is we're all in this together. I had a woman speak to ask a question after, um, after one of my book presentations. And she starts out by saying, I'm a secular Jew. And I said, whoa, don't say that because there is no such thing as a secular Jew. You are a Jew. And the fact of the matter is in your heart, you know it. You may not be what other people would call particularly observant or anything like that, but don't lose sight of the fact that you are a child of Abraham and a daughter of Yaakov and Yitzchak and all these people who went before us, and you're in the same boat I'm in. There's a God overhead. He tries to watch out for his people. He gives us free choice, and we do crazy things with that concept of free choice. Uh, but I try to get people to understand that what happens in Israel affects us here in the United States. And um, I grew up in the 50s, um, and there was um, Walt Disney was black and white, and then color, it was like, oh, my God, this is an incredible, you know, incredible world we live in. And one of the shows that he produced was Davy Crockett. Now, people looking at this view, they're going, what is he talking about? Well, Davy Crockett. Uh, was American congressman. He was a pioneer. He was a frontiersman. He had a lot of guts. He even went to Congress for, for a term. And um, there were people in the southwestern part of what we now call, well, I shouldn't say that way, the southern part called Texas now. And they were settlers who were trying to break away from Mexico. And they had terrible fights on their hands. So Davy Crockett gets up and he goes down to Texas and he casts his lot with these fighters at a place called the Alamo. Well, the Alamo uh, in the movie is portrayed as this fortress. That movies is wonderful. That's what I always say, they're magic. Alamo was not a fortress in, in 1834. The Alamo was a chapel that had been built in the 1700s by Spanish missionaries. And by the time the Battle of the Alamo took place, it was a derelict building. It had no roof, it had no floor, it had three sides and the back was empty. The real battle for the Alamo took place in front of it in the compound that the Alamo was anchoring about a thousand feet, a fifth of a mile back from the river 
to the to the to the chapel. And that's where the battle took place. And I realized a few months ago that Israel is the Alamo of the Jewish people. And you've got to defend it. And the way we defend it right now is we're in the diaspora, or when I'm in Israel, in Israel itself. But the battle is taking place outside. And you have to participate in that battle. Whether you learn a Jewish subject, whether you study with a partner and pick up something, whether you send your kids to Hebrew school, day school, yeshiva, we're all fighting for the same thing. And when a, when a chayal, when an Israeli soldier, there's a terrible incident today in Israel, I don't want to really get into it, but an Israeli soldier straps on his backpack and he carries an M16 and he's going into Janine because there are terrorists there who have attacked Israelis. He's fighting for us as well. We are in the same boat and we have to pull the oars in the same direction. And that direction is towards Israel. And if, if more people would realize that, Israel would be stronger and the American Jewish community will be stronger because we do have something to unite us. Now, where have we failed in America? My generation, my children's generation, many people are not giving their kids a Jewish education. Plain and simple. They know this Sukkot. They know this Passover. They know this Hanukkah. But they don't know the whys and the wherefores of, of Purim, what it really represented to the Jewish people of the time. Um, and it's that lack of education which brings them to the college campus and they go, oh man, I'm a Jew, they're picking on me. And they don't know why they're being picked on. They have nothing to, nothing to back themselves up. And make no mistake about it, uh, our kids go to college under underprepared, as far as their Judaism is concerned. No, it's it's today in the college campuses. Um, I also get to be a principal of a high school. Yes. And sometimes talking to parents, they're imagining college campuses today to be the college campus, the idyllic environment that they attended, or that yes. or that I attended. Where Me too. Really bad. Yeah, nothing really, <laughs> you too, or nothing really that bad. And they forget what is happening on campuses today from the classroom on down in terms of attacking core values of Jewish life. Yes. Have you spoken at campuses? Um, I have uh, not spoken at a campus in about um, 20 years. Oh. Uh, my message um, uh, is a hard one for them to bring me to the campus to be honest with you. Um, the, um, how do you chastise students because their parents did them wrong? Many years ago, um, I, I, after I spoke for um, a national organization, a woman came up to me and uh, she says, I don't know what I did wrong. My, my, my kids are more interested in saving whales than in saving Jews. Well, I had a hundred things to say to her, but you don't do that in that in that type of setting. And I said, don't blame yourself. You know, you, you know, your kids will come around at some point in time. I don't know where the kids are today, but when I say that this woman was shocked, this woman was a major donor to this Jewish organization. And I mean major. And you know, the thoughts that go through my head, um, did you light Shabbos candles in front of your kids? Did you take them to Israel for an educational tour as opposed to just a simple vacation? Did you do touring with them? What was your house like? Yeah, you know, someone once told me that when he goes into people's homes, the first thing he looks for is Judaica. Are the mezuzahs on the inside doors? 
or just on the outside door. And we, 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 have, we have fallen down. Now, I will tell you that when I grew up in Muncie, before it was Muncie, um, we only had a mezuzah on the, on the front door. You know, and, and now when I opened up my own office, I got mezuzahs on the out on the office doors and inside office doors. And, <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes someone will say to you, you know, what's that? And one of my one of my non-Jewish workers will say, Oh, it's a good luck charm. What are you going to explain? Right. Um, and when the from company, when, when the from guests come to do a closing somewhere, they're, they're busy kissing, you know, every, every room they walk into, they're kissing a mezuzah. So you know, accomplish something. It's I, I I don't know where we go from here. I mean. Sadly, um, I think we're going to be losing um, uh, members of the tribe in the United States uh, as the as the decades um, pass by. In 1962, I was being interviewed by the rabbi who was going to a bar mitzvah for me in a couple of weeks, and he's I'm sitting in his in his study in his home in Spring Valley. He says, "How many Jews in the world are there?" And I think 1962, I said to him. I believe, Rabbi, there's 15 million. And he says, that's, that's, that's pretty close. Um, do you have any ideas? He says, well, if we didn't have the Holocaust, you know, heaven knows how many we'd have today. And now, 50 years later, he asked someone that same question. The answer hasn't changed. The answer has not changed because we don't have big families. We have one child. We have two children. We, we basically have have diminished our own our own capacities um there were three in my family um and uh, most of my aunts and uncles only had two kids um and um i grew up though because my father had six brothers and sisters with cousins and uncles and aunts and stuff like that and my kids are doing the same thing um, i have two daughters with five each and one daughter with four each and my son in israel he only two daughters um right now but we need numbers we, we we need numbers we need numbers and we need education and that message is so very critical and believe it or not steve our time is also up so alisa's memory should continue to propel you forward not only to protect the victims but also to make a future for the jewish people by giving that message of education continuity and of strength so I thank you so very, very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Bye-bye.